what's up? This is Gaucho Lustwork, and you're listening to Real Life Rave Confessions, a podcast about electronic music, the industry that drives it, the people that participate in it, and the gossip that provokes it. Today's episode, we have Lisa Blanning talking with DJ Bus Replacement Service. They say one person's trash is another's treasure, and in the hands of DJ Bus Replacement Service, aka Doris Wu, throwaways achieve transcendence. A fondness for left-of-the-dial music that began as a child, her techniques have evolved to scour the murkiest corners of the web in search of music loosely defined that no other DJ on earth would come across, let alone have the gall to play out. So for this edition of Real Life Rave Confessions, it's me flying solo, Lisa Blanning, with Doris Wu, a.k.a. DJ Bus Replacement Service. Doris, thank you so much for joining me again yes, tonight. Yes, thank you again for, for, for take two. <laughs> I guess what we should reveal is that Doris and I actually recorded a, a version of this interview with Galtra Lustwork, but I unfortunately managed to delete it before we were able to get it online. Um, I just want to, in, in my own defense, I will say that I actually did try two different kinds of recovery softwares, but I still didn't manage to recover it. So uh, technology bested me in that in this case. Um, now I've learned a, a very valuable lesson, and, <laughs> however, and I, I, will, I, will, uh, I will not be handling the files in the same way in the future. Let me assure everybody. <laughs> Actually, after you told me that, I, I, now, I now kind of wait a few days before I empty the trash on my Mac, just in case. <laughs> Take it from me, everybody, that, uh, yeah, if you don't be so quick with the trigger finger there. But um, so, the, Doris, I think that... Um, you are a very interesting DJ. Uh, you're you you definitely uh, can make it bang, but I would also say uh, again that I feel as though you've got a concept behind what you do. And correct me if I'm wrong, uh, but if I'm correct, can you delineate the concept behind DJ Bus Replacement Service? Yes. And I, I, I think for me, I need to be, I, I like to prefer to not over intellectualize it because at the core of it, it's just me getting away with playing really stupid things. But in a, in a way, like you said, that it, it, it bangs and somehow all the dots are sort of connected enough for, for people to kind of either get it or are continually curious to hear more until the end of the set so basically the the way that I explain it to people is that my musical influences basically started from comedy I think last time we talked about things like the Dr. Demento show which is a radio show that plays a lot of novelty songs um, I grew up well I think when I've discovered things like Monty Python and stand-up comedy that also influenced um the, the way I, I, I kind of put really incongruous things together in my head. Um, and also, I think when I was in, I want to say, second grade in elementary school, or no, fourth grade in elementary school, my music teacher um, introduced us to this um, alter ego 
uh, called PDQ Bach, which is basically taking the piss out of classical music, but using very conventional classical composition tropes to deliver the jokes. And I thought that was quite clever. So all that jumbled up with getting into dance music and learning to DJ when I was in university, it this all sort of like this weird soup all kind of came together because the technology now lets me put these things together in probably an easier way than I could ever do before where, you know, you had to kind of like pre-make these mashups in Ableton or whatever DAW software you want to use. But now I can do this on the fly as a DJ. So it's kind of like a perfect time for me to come out with this stuff. I feel like having seen you play recently, I feel as though there's really, I can't really think of anyone else out there doing it. And do you think that there's precedence for this? Oh, yes. But again, I think using different technology. I think something I I really wanted to mention in the sort of rerun of the interview that I didn't last time was what an important influence going to raves in the Midwest and kind of hanging around the people that I was hanging around uh, kind of contributed to what I do now because I feel like I'm part of that. I'm part of that continuum. I heard other people let. I, I suppose I can throw out names like Dormouse. Um, he was a hardcore DJ, but that wouldn't stop him from playing like a freestyle track or probably like a comedy track with some really trashy metal and with a lot of noise and with performance art and. Um, I know a few, uh, many other people in the Midwest that I hung out with and went to parties with shared pretty much that similar core sense of humor of being trashy and being irreverent and anything goes like the crazier the combinations are, you know, the, the, the more people are hungry for it. So I definitely think that is a major, that is like a big milestone in BRS. And it's not one that I don't think I've ever really talked about because when people link me in the Midwest, they, they tend to just mention when I was a journalist for a a, a zine called massive Mm -hmm. back then, but that was all, that was completely mixed. That was completely part of the mix as well. Well, that's, I mean, that's interesting because I would say that, um, the idea of disrupting a set somehow, is is fairly common, you know. Maybe maybe with uh, something unexpected, maybe with a noise track, maybe maybe with with something complete completely uh, incongruous or and surprising. But but I but I feel as though I feel as though partly, as you say, um, comedy is a, is a big reference point. I are you trying to make people laugh? I think with, so. With your DJing, not directly. It's more about what. First of all, first and foremost, what I think is funny, I think that's that has to be your starting point. And I think that's how comedians write their jokes. I think we all like to think that we have an, an innate sense of what's funny and what's not. But then you don't kind of know what really works with the crowd until you road test it. And then that's when I get so for in the example of me DJing, I I work out sort of like these set pieces and I refine them 
as I as I play slightly different versions of them at different gigs and different festivals. And I, I like to always keep sharpening it until it's finally gotten to a state where I'm really happy with how this sounds. I'm going to record it, release it. And then once it's released, I kind of consider it a, like a retired set piece because mm-hmm. that's about as that's as good as I I want it to be. And I'm ready for it to be preserved now as a public recording. But and, and I think a lot of comedians do the same thing as well. They road test their material and then they film like a Netflix special or whatever. And then it's there for all of eternity. But we'll always go back to those favorite pieces mm-hmm. sometime later, but mix them with something else in a different context. It's really hard to um, to to kind of uh, pull yourself away from something that uh, you feel quite attached to, or I, I do at least, you know, my, my favorite tracks will always be my favorite tracks, but I know that I need to give it space once I've played it out too many times, I give it a breather and then maybe I revisit it a year later or maybe longer than that, um, mm-hmm. in a different context. Cause it always, you know, no, no matter what you play, and this is the wonderful thing I, I like about DJing you're always presenting in a different context depending on what combination you you play so it's it's always going to be a different result i partly the reason i find all of this so fascinating is of all of the different djs that i've spoken to or interviewed or read interviews with or musicians even not just djs um i can't I, I really can't think of anybody else who names comedy as an inspiration, as a, a you know, as a large inspiration, and and some and and somehow uh, connects it to co- connects it to their work. Other than for you know, perhaps maybe some experimental musicians who even even then, you know, I I, I can't I, I can't think of anybody who who literally lists stand-up comedy as an inspiration and can connect it so directly to a, a musical output. And I think this is fascinating actually. Um I well I I I I would tend to agree with you somewhat because nobody explicitly makes that reference point, but I definitely know the funnier guys in 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 the scene as it were. Like you. Um, there uh, Black Necks, which is a project um, of, of trust and bleaching agents. Um, I you can definitely tell with their artwork. I think their their last official release. Um, I'm I'm trying to describe it visually, but all I all I can all I can visualize is like a really crude sketch of like a penis. <laughs> uh, um, but it was attached to. I think it was attached to um i think uh who was a bleaching agent's cousin al it's really hard to describe but basically i remember going to see a show of theirs when they got invited to play a house of god mm-hmm. and trust was a completely different persona um bleaching agent it was the first time i saw him and then they brought al who was a drag performer um to a very confused house of god crowd <laughs> and they wore these really like tacky sort of like that nylon jacket the really flammable stuff that you see back in the 80s and i and i said to them like as soon as they finished you guys are the techno version of like doing donuts and making black marks around 
a parking lot for like an hour. Um, and there, there's another, there's another friend of mine. Um, his, he goes by, um, the name I, ID. He, he is a, he is, was a hardcore producer, but now he's part of Ghost in the Machine. Mm-hmm. Um, we used to hang out in the Midwest. Um, he's actually Dutch, but I actually thought he was a Midwesterner for a very, very long time. Um, a lot of his tracks are just like straight up really funny references. And there's a particular track, a favorite track of mine of his called backpack wisdom where he's put where he's using like pretty standard, like hardcore synth lines, but then he's like chopping up little bits of various hip hop tracks in between all these like amen breaks and hardcore breaks. Mm -hmm. And it's one of the most well put together and funny like electronic compositions i've ever come across so it's definitely there if you know where to look for it i was i just i feel as though it's something that's a lot easier to identify and express visually than necessarily musically um it's i can think of a lot of examples of like funny artwork or you know even costumes or whatever, but, uh, but it it also feels like it's a pretty fine line that you have to, that you have to balance, uh, between things being funny and also being something you want to listen to, especially in a, in a club setting and on a dance floor. Yep. So how do you, how do you navigate that? Um, really trial and error. (laughs) I, I think first and foremost, you have to be a, a good DJ. And I don't just mean being able to mix without a train wreck because, you know, with enough practice, anybody can do that. But can you play musically? And this has always kind of been my criticism in, in all the years I've seen different DJs as a punter or backstage. It's OK. They're they're technically competent, but this absolutely doesn't move me at all. It's just like two hours of duff, 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 and there's nothing challenging at all about this palette that they're presenting. But then you've got the other extreme where you've got these crazy kids who are playing really sped up versions of like pop songs into breakcore, into something else, into something else. But I'm not I don't necessarily automatically think that's oh crazy and great because something isn't really holding all those mixes together whether like harmonically mm-hmm. there's no link or somehow it's just too chaotic for me. So I I'm I'm not that kind of DJ where it's literally anything goes. Like for me there's there's a there's like a there's a reasoning behind why I put track A with track B, not just because oh I think this is like the two craziest combinations like they have to like musically be coherent somehow I, I, I like I said last time I don't have like I don't have formal musical training but I have performed music a lot not just as a DJ but you know, it's like um, playing an instrument and playing with a really large group and playing sheet music. So I don't know, maybe it's just this quite natural understanding of how things should sound together. Mm-hmm. And then I just I just try it out. Sometimes they don't they don't work. Right. And then I, I don't keep trying to hit a wall that 
that's not going to shift. I try to find another combination that's going to be more musically satisfying. That yeah, I mean that's it's it's interesting because uh, there there is definitely um, a, a narrative I would say, and uh, I'll bring up an example of that in a bit. But first, let me pose this question, which might sound familiar to you. But is there a place for irony in music? Oh yeah, I think okay, I think there that's, is. Okay, yes, absolutely. Um, I think, like I said, the break, the break core scene, maybe that's not the best example because I, because there is accusations of like people and they're taking themselves way too seriously. But I think the hardcore scene actually, um, as in like Gabber mm-hmm. hardcore, especially in the earlier days, I am not so in tune with like current hardcore producers, but surely there's a lot of them that are doing this thing very tongue in cheek. Um, and, and I think another, another producer that really springs to mind is also a, a big influence for me. Shit, Matt. Uh-huh. Lots and lots of irony there. Like in real life, he's a, he's a pretty crazy guy, but when he's making those tracks, especially, um, I think his first big album, um, Full English Break Fast on Planet Mew, mm-hmm. like, um, pretty much every track in there is perfect in terms of the production, but also the the jokes. Just whenever he's, whenever I think he's trying to do something funny with the music, it it just it just works so well. I wonder. I wonder if that if that if you have to have a certain mindset in order to appreciate that. Because I would have said previously, I would have said that there's not really a place for irony in music, and in, in, in that you should kind of mean it if you're going to do it. Although, obviously, I, I feel like comedy and irony are are two separate things. Although, obviously, they're related. Yeah, it's kind of hard for me to separate those things out sometimes, as you could probably tell from this interview. <laughs> well, I the thing is, I don't think you're ironic about what you're doing. I think I think that you you're you're pretty earnest about it, actually. Yeah. So uh, so so that's one delineation I would make, but um, but but obviously um, the 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 one one example of of you having like a, a thread running through an entire set is, is, um, you have this up on your SoundCloud is where you did a radio show, which is entirely riffing off of ice ice baby from, from beginning to end. And then at the very end, you, you, you literally end the show by saying that this was actually a terrible joke and, or that, that it was a, it was a joke and the joke was terrible. And that in and of itself made me laugh really hard. And it was it was kind of worth the the hour that preceded it. Although I will admit that I didn't listen to it and and I did skip through it. <laughs> I was literally like, "How can you actually? Can, is this even possible that you can that you literally can get an hour of ice ice baby?" Yep. I was. That's I was one surprised. of those really. It was a very that was a very rare um, experience of um, of a terrible experiment that I decided that I've like gone too deep and committed too much time into it already to just, just forget about it. 
because what it came that idea came about when I had like an 11 hour flight layover in Vancouver airport coming back from Maui and flying on my way to the US so my jet lag was like in full effect and sometimes when your mind isn't completely 100% normal is when the best ideas surface <laughs> best <laughs> best slash best slash worst slash best again <laughs> ideas surface and all it took was listening to like an entire album compilation of Ice Ice Baby remixes to go, I need to do this. <laughs> I, I did listen to, I think I collected about three hours worth of Ice Ice Baby remixes in the end and only about an hour kind of made it in the final cut. Thank God. But the, yes, but I was, I was like even even while i thought this is a terrible thing to do to myself i was kind of astounded by the spectrum of remixes that were out there obviously <laughs> there were a lot that were just there was like no sort of redeemingly bad enough thing going for it for me to broadcast on like radio or whatever but then i would be re-inspired by something as stupid as taking that backing track of um, the under pressure ice ice baby but some kid like spitting the quadratic um the quadratic theorem or the quadratic formula over it and talking about the quadratic formula and like a very inappropriate use of the n-word that i like reverse edited out i was like that kind of stuff kept me going (laughs) i am kind of curious to know were have you had any ideas where you discarded them because you thought no that's too that's too terrible i can't go there that we that that never that never made the cut other concepts Um, like this I wouldn't say never made the cut, but there was one time, and I won't mention an exact time or place, but I ended up playing um, a cut, like what sounded like a cheesy cover version of a well-known pop track in a foreign language, but I didn't pay attention enough to the lyrics, and it turned out the cover was quite racist. Oh. But I was playing to a room of maybe about five people. It... (laughs) In, in a country where that language wasn't widely spoken, so I felt like I dodged a bullet. <laughs> so racist covers are definitely a, a no-go area for me. Yeah, so, yeah. <laughs> um, but I, I know that in sort of my current form where I've been playing a lot of this, like, Russian variant of Donk called Hard Bass. Um, <laughs> I, I know there's a promoter I play for in New York who's Russian herself, and she's like, some of these lyrics are a bit spicy. <laughs> Uh-oh. Uh, but I think, you know, they, they were kind of like on the right side of it because I just say, you know, are any of these like really, really does? Like, no, they're just, they're a bit, I mean, the lyric, the, the, the title of one of the songs is I Fuck Hard Bass. So, you know, it's a bit strong. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, this, 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 this whole side of, of uh, what you do is, I think, made even more fascinating when, uh, when you look at what your day-to-day life is like. So tell, tell our listeners what it is you do for your day job. 
<laughs> well, like before, before the first of August, because <laughs> um, I, I think the listeners should know um, I, I've, I've basically been off sick all of this month. Um, so my day job is I'm, I'm a lawyer at a university in, in the UK. That's based short and simple, right? Um, but I, I didn't appreciate how challenging the job was on top of ha- having probably my most busy touring summer ever since I started DJing as BRS. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, so long and short of it, I wasn't giving myself enough time to recover from doing tours because I think a couple weeks after I started my new day job, I did a three-week tour in Australia, came back, and it was just boom, boom, boom every single weekend. I was playing at a festival somewhere, either in the UK or in Europe. Um, and I think just after we, you and I had met at Norberg, mm-hmm. um, I started to get chest pains. Um, and the second time I had it in that same week, um, my doctor took an ECG of me and said, this isn't right. And then I got strapped into a wheelchair, wheeled out of the my doctor's office straight away into an ambulance. And they took me to the, um, to the A&E at, um, at my local hospital. Damn. Um, and I think just after we'd done the first interview, I went back to see the doctor the next day and they said that I had pericarditis, which is inflammation around the heart. I've never really been sick that much in my life. I don't really have like heart problems in my family. So this is kind of a shock. Um, right. And I've, and I've had to cancel um, a few weeks worth of shows and this coming weekend will be the first, um, will be the first gigs I, I would have done since I had that, um, that health scare. And it sounds fairly obvious that this is linked to uh, overwork and stress. I, I think more likely than not. Um, pericarditis is, is one of those weird ones where you could get it as, um, from a viral infection um, or, or, or it, it can have no symptoms at all. But at the same time, people who have severe or chronic amounts of stress um, can have inflammation in their body because inflammation is basically the sort of starting signs of something going wrong in your body. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, I probably think it's that, but um, I still have um, a couple of heart tests that I'm, I'm waiting to, to, to get into in a couple of weeks. So it's really hard to know if there's anything else I need to be worried about at this stage, but I've kind of I've sort of resigned to thinking that this sort of this sort of low grade chest pain that I have will just be something I'm going to have for quite a while. It's, you know, I was hoping that while I've been signed off sick from work and not doing gigs that I'll be clear of it, but that's not been the case. But it's sort of like, yeah, so I, I still, I still have it while, as we speak, but I've made the call that, um, you know, I can't be permanently incapacitated by this. I, I've got to keep things going. So we'll just see what happens when I do my two shows this weekend, go back to work next week, and then and, and take it from there. Are you planning on making any sort of changes to 
your schedule or to your lifestyle in order oh, as yes. a result of this? Absolutely. Because this, because this, I, I mean, obviously we can't be sure, but, um, it, it's, it seemed, it seemed, it seemed, it would be, it just common sense would say that this has, has got to be related to the kind of schedule you've been keeping where you're working a full-time job and you're out, you're out every weekend, you're traveling and you're, you know, in clubs late at night, et cetera, et cetera. Probably not a lot of sleep on the weekends. No. And, and it's so, and you know, it's something that I took for granted is how much time you need to rest and recover in between going from one thing to another, whether it's gig to gig or, or night or night job to day job. And I thought I was resilient enough to not need that extra recovery time. Cause I think when I came back from Australia, I was, I felt like my body clock was in sync with UK time. And then I went straight to play a free rotation after that. And I thought, okay, cool. Um, But it probably caught up with me over the next few weeks. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't really resting in the job. And the day job was really, really intense. So when I got knocked out with the pericarditis and signed off sick, it was basically, I spent the first week basically being told I need to slow down by any by basically anyone I was in contact with that week, yeah. and they're right. I there, 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 there's I I've got absolutely no defense for that. So while I've been while I've been at home and trying to not treat this as like being under house arrest, I've been meditating more. Mm-hmm. I'm not rushing around doing things like a maniac. And I really hope I can carry that over to going back into work. But I think it's really the meditation that's going to help because I think when you get carried away doing something, you don't really notice um, how little time you have to kind of check yourself. And meditation and mindfulness is all about checking yourself to make sure things are not getting carried away. So... Basically, what that means is I'm going to have to take m- more breaks than I used to, which was basically zero mm-hmm. during my day job. Mm-hmm. And, and just make sure that, you know, if things are a bit stressful, I've got these I've got these tools now, basically breathing exercises or guided meditations to pull me out of that situation so I can go back in with a sense of perspective because I basically lost it all. And so every time I went back, having put nothing back into my tank after a weekend of DJing and going into a stressful situation again, I I was not giving myself any chance at all in, in dealing with that well. And even though like people who I think are high are like um, high functioning people who can kind of internalize a lot of stuff, there is a point where the body's going to be, no, I'm not internalizing this anymore. This is going to come out as inflammation. It's going to come out as something else that your body is like screaming to tell you to stop. And it it happens to all of us. Um, Well, it happens to everybody who is uh, working as long and as much as as you are, I suspect. But uh, I, and I, you, you, I, I mean, you strike me as the kind of person that uh, doesn't that probably that you're very capable and that you probably don't like the idea of having to slow down. You're you're very right, and I think the the, the big change now is if I can work really efficiently, 
am, am I actually benefiting from that efficiency or am I just trying to cram more down the pipe? And I, I, I know what the answer is and I, I really need to not cram more things down the pipe and, and enjoy working faster by having that extra time to reorganize myself throughout the day. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, it also sounds as though your day job is, is, is also quite demanding and um, more so than may, perhaps some other day jobs are um, it, where it's, it's, you know, it, it's, it's highly skilled work. It's uh, um, there's, you know, high, I, I would call it high pressure probably. Yeah. It's, but it's, it's, it's in a very different way to other stressful situations that I've had, um, being a trainee lawyer. Cause I can think of so many other, other times where the work itself is more stressful. I mean, I, I don't do litigation now, but litigation was one of the most stressful things I've ever experienced in my life because you dread going into the office because you, you don't know what crazy thing you're going to get in the email next or what huge like bundles of like basically bullshit the other side sends you to waste your time to, to wow. go through the rest of that week. It's not like that in my situation now, but there is a lot there's a lot of work to be done. I think it's the quantity that's really overwhelmed me. Mm-hmm. And, and instead of, I, I think giving myself space in between those jobs, I'm just trying to get through them as quickly as I can. And it's not sustainable. And, and I, to, to put, to bring this back into DJing, because this is a podcast about DJing. <laughs> well, I, 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 I think, I think a similar, a similar link can be made with, how many gigs one person does. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that, you know, with bands, they have a touring schedule where they're on the road constantly and they don't see home for months at a time. And I know that some DJs tour that way as well. I think probably the most, the best known example is Avicii. If anyone saw his documentary and seeing how many dates he was racking up and knowing that he was going to die in the end. It's like the, that's, 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 that's just not a good, that is not a, a good place to be. Right. Because you, um, let me guess when you first started out as, uh, let's say a professional DJ, i.e. you were getting paid to travel and, and DJ, you probably thought of it as fun. Oh yeah. Like, like People are finally paying me to do this, right? And so, yes, and, and and that and that's a very addictive thing. But yeah. that can be become a very addictive thing, right? And then and then obviously at a certain point, uh, it it becomes well, you know, at, there's got to be a turning point where it's not fun and it's it's actually work, or or rather it's it's work that can still be fun, but there's still like a, a large element of, of of work going on, and and the the travel alone is got to be stressful and for it to manifest physically, um, after keeping this sort of schedule is, uh, is what, so we, so we see now that that, that's happened, but, um, do you think that, do you think that becoming a professional DJ, um, has also changed, you know, has also changed um, the mental health aspect of it? 
it's made it a lot more apparent, especially especially with this month, because I think before then I was just happy that things are going well and that I felt like I was resilient enough and was doing the right things mm-hmm. to, to, to keep everything on track. But I don't want to say that I'm glad that I had this experience, but it felt like I was always leading myself to burn out eventually. I just didn't know when. Um, I still really enjoyed DJing very much. It's definitely like a way for me to um, unwind from the day job because okay. it's a very it's like it's like a left brain versus right brain activity i i i get i get all my creative indulgences out of djing mm-hmm. but during the week i can really get down and 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 do some really intellectually demanding stuff not to say that djing is not intellectually demanding but it's it's it uses creativity rather than sort of more like technical legal skills especially dealing with other people. I think it's more about people management than being creative. Right. right, right, right. Um, um, so I guess what I'm trying, I, I'm not really sure what I'm trying to say. Now. <laughs> well, you know, I'm just, I'm just thinking about how uh, you probably went into, went into the idea of, of DJing quite a lot as uh, this is good for my mental health because I enjoy it so much. And then you realize that it also comes with its its own, it you know after a certain point it, it, it comes it comes with its own sorts of it, it taxes that part of your of your well being as well. Yes, um, I'm. I, I have to say that I was definitely not naive to that situation because my husband's been doing this for over two decades, and I've seen how he's um, he's try to protect himself mentally and physically from the from his grueling schedule because um it's a lot more demanding than what i do so he really needs to make sure that he carves out recovery time during the week Mm -hmm. um okay well i mean now we should tell the listeners who your husband is yes um he he plays techno and his name is surgeon and he's been doing this long for a very long time <laughs> right and uh, uh and and he's been work he has been uh making a living as a musician for a very long time so he's been a professional musician for a very long time yeah that's been his only job so in in a way that's that's quite good because there's a continuum from weekday to weekend but it doesn't make the travel any easier and i think he hates traveling more than i do i can i can kind of just like shut off when i'm in transit and go into an autopilot mode but um yeah he absolutely he loves playing music hates the traveling <laughs> i have a feeling that there's actually quite quite a lot of people that would would, would share that sentiment Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's so it's a it's it's an interesting position to be in because on on one hand it's a privilege and a pleasure I'm, I'm I, I imagine to be able to play music for people, um, but then you know but but clearly clearly it's uh, it's it's not it's it's it isn't always the paradise job one might imagine. I I am curious to to know though just going back to the whole conceptual element of 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 
your work. Yes, as, the fun, the fun stuff. Yeah, go, back go, to back the, the go back to the fun stuff. <laughs> like, were you surprised that you were able to make a living? Or not, sorry, I guess because you don't really make a living <laughs> doing what you're doing because you have a day job. But, um, but, but were, were you surprised at, to, to the extent of your, the, the, how, how many bookings you started to receive and how often you were playing and how far you were traveling? I think, you know, in hindsight, yes, I am, I am, I am quite surprised because compared to say four years ago, I, I was, I had no touring schedule. I played once, maybe twice a year if I was lucky. Um, but I, I don't, I don't want to dismiss that, that sort of that stage because without, without that, I wouldn't be here now. Um, and I, I was doing a lot of stuff mainly with like shit mat and the Chinstroke Records crew. And, mm-hmm. you know, I think we, we all shared like a very similar sense of humor. And I really enjoyed that we all DJed in very different ways, but had some sort of common thread of like being crazy and random. And I like really being part of that group. And I, I, I actually remember when I was just doing those shows at the Bang Face Weekenders with them, I was like, this is perfect. I, I wouldn't want to DJ solo like I I just didn't feel ready at that time I always felt like there was some strength in numbers Mm -hmm. doing stuff with them but if I if I'd stay that way um I would only continue playing maybe one or two shows a year but then I think a couple years ago that all changed when I started getting recommended for bigger festivals like Sonar and, and free rotation and I think once that got into like the the resident advisor world that just took off which i'm absolutely grateful for and and my booking agents have been really good at pitching me for gigs that i really enjoyed playing especially this year's festivals mm-hmm. so I, obviously if things are going in that upward direction i i, I don't want to stop it unless there's like a good reason like my health <laughs> But that doesn't that that doesn't mean that we stop finding um, similarly interesting gigs to to um, to push for next year. Um, so I, I feel I feel optimistic that there is an audience for this stuff, and I feel like it's not just it's not just me, but there's definitely um, this this vibe of wanting DJs who can play quite eclectic, quite hybrid anything goes type of stuff but playing it in a very musically skilled way there's so many there's so many people who are doing that now i i can't even count on on two hands Mm -hmm. but it just shows that there's a demand for more creative djing now and, and 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 people are hungry for it so i just feel like i i got plopped in at the right time and right place um for all this to happen because you know i i've been i think DJ BRS kind of came about in 2008. So it's not like I've just sort of sprung out from nowhere. Right. It probably, it probably has taken it this long for some zeitgeisty thing to say, Hey, I think, uh, I think you can probably get some shows off the back of this. And I was like, yeah, let's go. (laughs) What about the visual element of, of how you perform? Do you think that that has, do you think that that's added to it or do you think it's, it's relevant at all to, to a, a, a PRS performance? I think it certainly complements 
it. But I, I, I leave that up. I'd leave that to the people in the audience to um, to conclude what they think about that. But for me, I've always, I've all, I've almost always DJed in one disguise or another. I think we talked about how I first started out. Like I think my first Bang Face weekender I played, I I I wore like an impossibly large shark, like head to toe shark costume that I all I always had to prop up with one hand, but because I was playing with Ableton at the time, I could just use my free hand to trigger stuff on on the keyboard, and I had to make everything like four hundred times big because I couldn't really see out of the red mesh that was the mouth of the shark costume. <laughs> It was like so not ergonomic. Like my current mask is a, even though I can't really see very much out of it, it's a lot more user friendly because hey, I can use both hands to DJ now. <laughs> Imagine that. Okay, all right. For for anyone for anyone who doesn't know, uh, tell, just just describe your current your current your current costume. It is uh, so the head is just a, a, a thick rubbery mask. Um, molded in the style of Kim Jong-un <laughs> but I complement the rest of the look with like a really badly made Mao jacket that he likes to wear <laughs> and this came from China so like the buttonholes and the buttons don't line up and the fabric is like really itchy and flammable <laughs> um, I, and I wear like a white shirt with a Mandarin collar underneath and then that's it because that's a lot of costume to pack if you're traveling with hand luggage. So I've just stopped like bringing the trout, the, you know, the, the, the trouser bit of it. Cause it just got too bulky, but, and, <laughs> but that's basically the, the, the bit that you see anyway. So that, that's fine. Uh, yeah. So, um, and I have to say, I, I can't, when I play, I can't really talk to people cause there's no mouth hole. I can't really hear anything going on outside my in-ear monitors cause there's no ear holes. <laughs> and I only see out of like these two tiny pinholes for eyes. So I've got no peripheral vision, which makes for a very specific technical rider in the way that they have to set things up just so. <laughs> so I'm not having to run from one end of the booth to the other just to get a mix in because that's happened before. And, and, and this is like the main advantage of wearing the mask is if I have a setup like that, you can't see me cry. <laughs> Okay, but I want to know why why Kim Jong Un, and and where did you get this mask? Um, I got it from a place called the Ministry of Masks. <laughs> I I think they have literally broken the mold because you cannot buy this mask anymore. Oh um, man! So a, if this mask breaks somehow or wears out, then you're literally going to have to go for a different persona. Or I spend an unreasonable amount of money to get them to like recast it out of my mask hopefully if it's not stolen uh, okay you're, well you're committed to kim, kim jong-un then kind kind of but you know meditation and mindfulness is about not being attached to any not having like a permanent attachment so if if it, if it disappears if i can't use it anymore i'm fine with that I've got so many more costumes <laughs> <Yeah>. at home. <laughs> all of them ill, ill-fitting and, and uh, <laughs> all ill, all 
very, very ill-fitting. <laughs> well, I, okay, but why Kim Jong-un? Yes, yeah, so why Kim Jong-un? So um, there was a stage in my BRSing that I got really obsessed with North Korean pop music. Um, if you've not heard it before, I highly encourage you to just Google some. <laughs> um, all the the best way I can describe it is okay. So pop music is just popular music, popular for whatever region that is relevant to you. But somehow, their pop music is obviously made in very much a vacuum. Um, not influenced by Western pop music very much, and they've got their own idea of popular melodic. Um, sort of like melodic stylings, and it's and it's an and it's all sung in a very eerie minor key, either as a solo singer or as, or as like a huge choral performance. But there is a particular song called um, "Don't Ask My Name" by Ri Kyung Suk, um, and you'll know it because the video features a guy who keeps like stalking her in like the Pyongyang subway system, like taking pictures of her, and in the end they hook up because you know reality um and i i was really mesmerized by that song and i first heard it on a sublime frequencies compilation they didn't name the track so it took me a few years i think to finally track it down um and i wanted to know more and and then i came across other groups um i think she sung with this group called the Panchambo Electronic Ensemble or PEE for short. Now they call themselves an electronic ensemble. Uh, um, so you think, okay, there might be like bits of like craftworky techno. It's not. It's just like military music with a synth, which in its. <laughs> Lots of things to get obsessed about there. And I was also getting into like really weird K pop. Mm-hmm. Not the not the sort of standard cookie cutter stuff like Girls' Generation, where there's no there's there's no liquor irony on the surface whatsoever, but kind of things that are just sort of beneath the surface. Things that are they they're not they may not be sure that what they're doing is politically incorrect, or they're like putting in a trap middle eight for like no reason whatsoever, apart from someone said, "Oh, I hear traps cool. Let's put some in a K-pop track." There's a lot of incorrectness with Korean music that I love somehow. So I thought that the mask is obvious is to me is a clear cultural link and, and sort of my homage to like how much Korean music has informed BRS. Oh, and the most important uh, Korean music thing that I latch onto is this uh, genre called Pongchak. Mm-hmm. Um, it's basically this like scatty style of. Um, well, it's basically Korean scat music, really, and 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 the key proponent of this genre is a guy called uh, Epoxa. Um, and the story goes that he would just like sing these like Korean scatty twos or like cover versions of traditional songs um, on these like long distance bus rides to the Korean countryside, and then he discovered like a cheap keyboard um, with really like cheap drum patterns, and he started to get electronic. And it was magic. And he's like collaborated with like Denki Groove and DJ Hixie and like hardcore producers. There's like a Gabba remix with his vocals on it. So he's kind of like the embodiment of like a, a really obscure part of me somehow. Wow. That's yeah, that's crazy. That's very interesting. He's uh, that's... the best. 
And he, he also did a cockroach commercial for the Japanese market. Just like another totally random thing about him. <laughs> like what what's not to love? Yeah, that, okay, that's that's that. That's he sounds like an interesting dude. Yeah. Yeah, and it sounds and 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 it sounds pretty interesting when played in my sets as well. <laughs> so that's clearly clearly one to watch out for. But as you know, the the title of this podcast is Real Life Rave Confessions. So I was wondering if you had one for us. Yes, um, I think I think I gave I gave two last time, but I wanted to add a third. Oh yes, please. Okay, so the first one I talked about was when I started going, I think it was my very first rave in Indianapolis, and it was basically an illegal house party. Um, that that party, I, um, I ended up in jail overnight because I was underage. I was 17, and so I got busted for a curfew violation um, while there was a, a drugs bust going on at the same party. Ooh. And, and and nothing says disappointed Asian parents like picking their daughter up from jail at like four in the morning. <laughs> um, yeah. Okay. So that that's my first. That's my first quick one. Second confession. Um, this was in Japan, in Tokyo, some years ago. Um, there was a guy that um, that I that I come to know he's he's like a quite a high level master of Japanese rope bondage called Osada Steve <laughs> um, and and we were gonna so yeah he he said oh we want to hang out and I was like okay yeah cool um didn't know what that was really going to involve so we ended up going to like a BDSM hostess bar in in Shinjuku um, and, I mean that sounds wild already yeah so you know it definitely felt slightly out of my element it's like you know tony was with me it's like this is like really uncomfortable but it's a place where like businessmen go it's like a typical hostess bar but obviously there's like bondage rooms and things like that but like the girls weren't like like too intense or anything like that you know they obviously just wanted guys like keep buying him drinks or whatever but uh out the corner of my eye i spotted an ipod hooked up to the sound system so that's it to, to, to keep myself um busy and not awkward and like still like engaged in the evening um i asked you know could i play something i i'm pretty sure i asked i don't think i i hijacked the sound system per se <laughs> but i just ended up playing white house <laughs> The whole time that we were there, and like, I don't think anybody really batted an eyelid, which I thought was cool. It's like it was some, also, somehow appropriate. Yeah, but it was also cool to like hear crews like in a BDSM bar. So <laughs> there you go. And while was, while I've been like tidying my house while I've been sick, I've actually found like business cards that I collected from the hostesses. So I was like, I knew I was there. Whoa. Um, and the final rave confession, um, one that I didn't talk about before, and it makes me look sound like a total loser, was when I interviewed um, Thomas or Thomas Van Gelter, one Ooh. half of Daft Punk, back in my days writing for Massive. This was, wait, I think, wait. in nine. Yeah, sorry, I, that's what I was going to ask. What year was this? Yeah, that's that was still with Massive, and I think homework had just come out and they did a show in chicago at this really like really dodgy roller skating 
um, place called Route 66 in the south side of Chicago. Wow. I mean, that kind of sounds amazing. That would have been 1997. Yeah, probably. Um, I was obviously very excited to interview him. He was far less so. And he basically <laughs> cut the interview. He cut the interview show. I was like, um, yeah, I don't, I don't want to do this anymore. Cause I want to go hear Paul Johnson play. I was like, okay, <laughs> <laughs> but I have a picture of him unmasked. So I don't know. At, at least that was my consolation prize for being dumped, dumped <laughs> by the interviewee. <laughs> well, I mean, um, that was very rude of him. Uh, I guess, I guess maybe he wanted, yeah, he, he, maybe he really did truly want to listen to the music, but <laughs> I don't, I don't, I don't blame him. I mean, Paul Johnson is obviously like a key influence in, in what, in what they were doing. So I was like, uh, fair play, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> That's a, that, well. I I have to I have to thank you because uh, the, this peek into a long and storied history has is it's been fascinating. Thank you. Yeah, and, and thanks for letting me share my stupid stories. <laughs> I know. Thank you for having the patience for putting to uh, share them twice or some of them, and because uh, some of them, some of them only once. But uh, I enjoyed hearing <laughs> all of them. <laughs> and so, until next time, then. Cool. Bye. Thank you. shame that you couldn't make the re-recording of this episode but I wanted to ask you if you thought when you were listening back you felt any if you related to any of the stuff that we talked about um I related to the fact that she's from the midwest and was like into weird stuff and zines and and college radio and stuff I I was really into hearing all those stories because I was a little bit too young for all that um, and also related to just like all her health things, although I don't have like, I don't have her condition. Um, like I've definitely experienced like chest pains and weird, you know, jet lag related issues. Uh, so I feel, I feel her on that, you know, the need to kind of slow down and just 
figure out how to like prioritize and make make what you can do more efficient and whatnot. Yeah, I, I suspect that keeping when you do things like work a day job as well as keep a DJ kind of traveling schedule, that it could really raise some health concerns. And another another reason why you didn't make the re-recording of this was because you were had been doing a lot of traveling. Yeah, I was like super exhausted from like first of all I had this like EDM gig in Palm Springs and I was like looking forward to it but uh like my flight had to like make an emergency landing so I missed one gig completely um and then the second gig was was uh like the opposite it was, it was super fun it was in LA there was like celebrities there and you know it was just like classic LA like warehouse vibe Celebrities, do tell. Celebrity, well, um, Azealia Banks was there. Ooh, well, she did comment on your Instagram that she was going to be there, so nice that she showed up. Yeah, yeah, she was there. That was cool. And apparently, someone from Game of Thrones was there. Oh my God, which one? Like, um, I don't like. So I, I don't watch Game of Thrones, but it's like some dude with the. Uh, He's kind of pale with like curly hair, like kind of skinny maybe. <laughs> um, he looks like he looks like that somebody you anybody. see at a party. <laughs> He's got a funny name. You know what I'm talking about? No, that could be anybody. You don't know the name, the character's name? Uh, I well, I mean, I know the characters' names, but not the actors' names. But how did you know it was someone from Game of Thrones? Uh, Jimmy, the the part, the promoter, he uh, he came up and was like, "Someone from Game of Thrones is here." Okay, and I uh, was like, "Oh, word!" All right, well, this definitely means that I need to start partying in LA, I guess. Uh, <laughs> so then, um, well, thank you for for catching up with us for this bit, and uh, thanks to Doris for telling us her stories. Yeah, thank you, and also get well, get well soon too. Yeah, thanks, Doris. Doris. Okay, till next time. Bye. Later, later.